This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. We're all plugged in, ready to go. Tim Spreen on the other side of the glass giving me the thumbs up. Tim, how are you tonight? I didn't see you with a, uh, a can of Red Bull. Do you have one? Oh, there it is. All right. Tim always has. We have to get you an endorsement deal for Red Bull. This, he, this is like mother's milk to Tim. I have never seen him without a can of Red Bull. How many cans of Red Bull would you drink uh, during a shift? Just give me a finger. Just one? You're down to one. Because it's late. Because it's late. All right. All right. Be kind to Tim when you speak to him on the phones tonight. Tim Spreen, my technical producer. Hey, always feels good to begin the program by introducing a new affiliate. And tonight we, uh, we go into the heartland of America to Iowa. K-R-O-S-A-M 1340, Davenport, Iowa. Very pleased uh, to be added to their roster. Uh, Davenport, Iowa, I believe, um, home to St. Ambrose University. And uh, nearby Clinton, uh, Iowa, home to uh, Ashford College. And they play a lot of baseball and basketball in St. Ambrose and and Ashford. So thanks, AM 1340, for giving uh, the uh, Conspiracy Show a try. Uh, we'd love to hear from listeners in Iowa in the coming weeks, and you can say hello on Twitter at Richard Serrett. Now, of course, up here in the Great White North, it's hockey. Uh, not sure what it's like where you are right now, but up here we're in the uh, the midst of, uh, of winter. And uh, so most weekends, you're going to find me at the Thornhill Community Center out on the ice with the Twins, who are uh, already streaking around the rink playing tag, and I'm happy to report spending more time on their skates uh, this year, and less time on their backsides cleaning the ice. Uh, Dad's not too bad on the skates either, I'll have you know, Tim, at the age of 49. I've got some wheels still. <laughs> uh, very excited about the show tonight. <clears throat> Excuse me. Let me grab my tea here. Very excited for a number of reasons. Uh, first of all, my first guest, he's a filmmaker who will uh, who's going to join me in just a few minutes, but one of his best friends going back to his days in high school, uh, happened to be one of my favorite comedians, the late Bill Hicks. And regular listeners to the show will know we play some clips from uh, Bill Hicks on the show from time to time. Uh, But filmmaker Kevin Booth is not here to talk about Bill Hicks, although his new film, 
is about something Bill Hicks talked a lot about, and that was the hypocrisy of the longest declared war in U.S. history, the War on Drugs, now in its fifth decade, a war declared back in the early 70s, maybe 1971, by President Richard Nixon. And what has that war um, gained us? Hundreds of thousands of, uh, of people uh, dead, really, perhaps more. I mean, I think just last year in Mexico, 40 or 50,000 people as a result of these, uh, these drug turf wars between cartels. Uh, so the carnage has just been unbelievable. And has it done anything to stem the flow of drugs into the United States? No. You look at the, the number of, of people that have served time, had rec- now have records, uh, their, their, their lives blemished by uh, criminal, uh, or, uh, criminal records for nonviolent drug offenses. And on and on it goes, all because of this failed drug war. Kevin Booth is an American film and video producer, director, musician. He's best known for his work with the late comedian Bill Hicks, as I mentioned, who was the subject of his book, Agent of Evolution, published by HarperCollins UK. Hicks and uh, Kevin knew each other since their time together at Stratford High School. Booth founded Sacred Cow Productions in 1986 and has since explored such controversial subjects as the Waco Siege and the New, New World Order. The company's most notable release, American Drug War, The Last White Hope, which explores the failings of America's war on drugs. And he's got a brand new film entitled American Drug War II, Cannabis Destiny. Saw the film this weekend, blown away by it. Riveting. You must see it. And we'll find out how how and when you can. Uh, In the meantime, we welcome Kevin Booth to The Conspiracy Show. Kevin, how are you? Doing good. What's going on? Man? Thanks for having me on. Oh, my pleasure. And it was uh, a great meeting you uh, up near Studio City this uh, past December. Thank you for welcoming m- myself and my crew into your home. And uh, first of all, congratulations on American Drug War Two. You know, the uh, the subtitle "Cannabis Destiny." Uh, one of the things that um, popped out at me in the film was, and, and many people, you know, may not. Most people won't remember this because you'd have to go back to your grandparents' day. But there was a time when, when cannabis oil was something you'd find in just about every medical doctor's kit bag, medical bag. And we, I mean, wh- when did that all change? Well, I mean, basically when they when they outlawed it, and you know, as we cover in the film, when the Rockefeller came through and created all these medical foundations, and he basically, you know, uh, people didn't realize. Rockefeller was the world's first billionaire, and he came through and uh, took the focus of medicine off being all plant-based, which it had been, you know, previously, and made it all chemical-based. And so, instead of plants being uh, medicines being based on herbs, that, you know, and plant nutrients that heal, it's all based on chemical poisons that kill things. And you know, so that's you know starts right around 1913, I suppose. And and cannabis oil uh, back then, doctors knew that it was what an anti-inflammatory. It could be used for what what sorts of things? It, I mean, that's just it. It was a very wide range, and that's why a lot of people, you know, in recent history, kind of poo-poo on it because we think that everything that's pharmaceutically that or everything that should be allowed into the modern day pharmacopoeia has to be some very specific thing, and that's one of the problems with the modern-day pharmacopoeia. You know, it, 
cannabis oil is good for headaches, menstrual cramps. It's anti-inflammatory. They use an antibiotic. It was uh, used for depression, sleeplessness, you know, nausea. Every you know, this huge wide range of things, and that's why. why some of the people that roll their eyes at legalizing marijuana as a medicine, you know, one of the ways that they, they doubt it is to say, like, oh, yeah, just it's like this cure-all, you know, where, you know, really it is. I mean, there really can be, it really is possible to have one medicine that does, that serves a bunch of purposes. It's the people that make money putting out these millions of different things. So when you open your medicine cabinet, you know, you know I open my medicine cabinet and I've got like 5,000 different little bottles. It's crazy. You know, like you have to have like a little, some sort of pill for each little ailment that you get. It didn't used to be like that. Uh, part of the film, obviously, is 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 dedicated to exploring the idea of of cannabis or or cannabinoids and and uh, how they can heal and prevent illness. Something that we knew about and then seemed to forget about. Um, and and I want to explore a little bit about that now. But that's not the 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 be all and end all of the film. Uh, you also talk about just the hypocrisy of this uh, this war on drug and the violence that have, that has ensued. And, and I know that you were down in in um, a hot spot in Mexico, Juarez, Mexico, across from uh, El Paso, Texas. We'll get into that a little bit later as well. Kevin Booth is with us, and his new film is American Drug War Two: Cannabis Destiny. Now, Kevin, the film opens, and this is a real heartbreaker. Um, you you you, um, you introduce us to a, a young family. Uh, out of Montana that has a, a young child named Cashy with stage four brain cancer. Uh, just without giving away, obviously, everything that happens in the film, but just tell us about the dilemma that this family was facing. Well, um, at the time, uh, little Cash Hyde uh, was uh, two years old and diagnosed stage four brain, guess what they call a peanut tumor. It's the size, the size and shape of a peanut inside of his brain. Uh, he was rushed into the hospital. He had all kinds of strange diagnoses before and going down a bunch of rows. But once they did the CAT scan and the MRI and they realized, okay, it is a brain tumor, he was rushed down to uh, a, uh, a big medical center in Salt Lake City where they performed uh, emergency brain surgery, uh, radiation, high-dose high radiation, uh, high-dose chemo. And, you know, due to all these, harsh treatments and all these and just this really aggressive um, line of treatment they did on him. He went into a coma and he was, uh, did not eat for almost 40 days and lay there in a coma. And basically the doctor started preparing the parents, uh, Mike and Callie to basically telling him they needed to start planning a funeral. And um, at the time, Mike was researching a Canadian man by the name of Rick Simpson who had, uh, basically retweaked an old recipe for cannabis oil, the cannabis oil you're talking about just a few minutes ago, but he had kind of like upped it to modern day standards and found a way to make it even more potent and plus using the more powerful marijuanas that we do have today that have much stronger cannabinoids and CBDs and a much more focused, much more powerful way of doing it with modern day solvents and chemicals and just just a process that really wasn't possible even 100 years ago with plants that weren't around 100 years ago, uh, way more powerful. And so he was able to uh, get his hands on some of this oil, and this oil is not easy to come by. I mean, you have to take a pound of 
you know, very, very top-grade bud to just come up with, you know, a handful of syringes of this oil. It's very, very concentrated stuff, very powerful. I mean, if you just put uh, this, the, the amount of, like, a grain of rice in your tongue, it's like tripping on acid. It's so strong. It's just unbelievable how strong this stuff is. They, um, you know, being told that their son had days to live, they snuck some syringes of this oil into the hospital where their son was laying in a coma, and they started pumping small bits of it into his feeding tube, this feeding tube that just goes directly into his stomach. And not the not the chemo tube, but the feeding tube that goes into his stomach. So it would ingest through his system. This is why he's laying there unconscious. Literally 24 to 48 hours later, he's out of the coma and he's eating and then up walking around in days. And the entire hospital, doctors, everybody, you know, was basically saying it's it's a miracle. It's a miracle, it's a miracle, and when the time came a little bit later, when the hide sprung it on to the hospital staff, like what this miracle was really all about, that, you know, you, you'll, yeah, you're right, it was a miracle, it was a miracle of cannabis, um, you know, the, the you-know-what hit the fan, and that's kind of where the story starts. Right, because now, uh, as we learn later, the, the, the state of Montana, I believe, uh, voted to ban medical marijuana and well, they, yeah right they had they, right. they they had they had legalized it and now there are people coming back and saying that the people that voted for it didn't really understand what they were voting for and so they're putting like a repeal either yeah they're they're putting a ban in place to repeal the law that they had put in place and so they allowed you know a small number of patients and it never you know medical marijuana i mean this is montana i don't know if you've ever been there but it's very conservative. It's a very, you know, it's a very sparsely populated, you know, it is, it's, you know, I'm from Texas and it's, uh, it's, it's the closest thing to Texas I've ever been to. It's like Texas of the North. And it's very conservative. So it's not, it's not like Montana turned into Venice Boulevard or something like that, you know, like it is here in Los Angeles, completely crazy and out of control. You know, we're, we're talking about a couple of dispensaries. We're talking about, you know, just very small amounts of people using it. Not a right. big, let, crazy, out-of-control thing. It was very conservative. Kevin, let me just jump but, in here. We'll take a time out. We'll come back and continue to delve into American Drug War II, Cannabis Destiny. Stay with us. I think it's interesting, the two drugs that are legal, alcohol and cigarettes, two drugs that do absolutely nothing for you at all, are legal. And the drugs that might open your mind up to realize how you're being f***ed every day of your life... Those drugs are against the law. <laughs> Coincidence? <laughs> See, I'm glad uh, mushrooms are against the law because I took them one time. You know what happened to me? I laid in a field of green grass for four hours going, my God, I love everything. <laughs> yeah, now that is a hazard to our country. <laughs> How are we going to justify arms dealing if we know we're all women? The world is being pulled over your eyes. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To reach Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back. Kevin Booth is with us, American film and video producer, director, musician. The, the movie is American Drug War II, Cannabis Destiny. And the film explores uh, claims that cannabis oil can be used as a preventative and a cure for diseases. I mean, I don't even think these are claims anymore. These are scientifically proven. Uh, but I think what's more important is that they can prevent and cure certain diseases with zero psychoactive side effects 
And as they point out in the film, that's something the government and the pharmaceutical companies don't want you to know about. Uh, but, but more than that, the film also examines the over-medicating uh, of our children. We'll get into that with Kevin Booth in a moment. And the court-ordered mind-altering drugs used on foster children, something he knows about firsthand, because he's going to reveal as, as a foster parent how he was forced to give prescribed drugs to his own foster daughter or otherwise be decertified for not following court orders. Uh, Kevin, we were talking about medical marijuana. Uh, there are about, what, 18 states now in the U.S. that have uh, legalized medical marijuana? Yes, I think I believe Massachusetts was just uh, the latest. And then, like, we were just talking about that, uh, Montana took a, took a step in the wrong direction. But even still, you have, even in California, uh, which we tend to think of as this mecca for medical marijuana, you still have DEA officials. It doesn't seem to matter what the states decide. Uh, for example, Colorado and uh, another state, what was it, Washington, uh, basically decriminalized or, or made it okay to, for recreational use. It doesn't seem to matter what the states do. The feds basically say, well, we're going to prosecute anyway. And even with these medical marijuana labs, you have... Um, they're being raided, and 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 uh, this, you know, this such an important herb being taken away from people that are suffering horribly. Yeah, I mean, you know, look, I I got to be honest. It, it'd be real easy for me to to jump on that bandwagon really hard, but I mean, at this point in California, for you to get raided, you've you've got to be making a lot of money. You've got to you got to expose yourself. You know, it's it it's kind of like the the feds have been beaten down a little bit now. Now, do they selectively prosecute people for various reasons that kind of match their own interests? Yes. I mean, is it still completely horrible and corrupt? Yes. Is there a lot of things going on that are you, you know? Yes, yes, yes. And good people go to jail and so forth and so forth. But you know, in a, in a way, I mean, California is the mecca for marijuana. You know, although it's uh, Colorado, you know, it's. It's almost like when I go to like the Colorado dispensaries, it's, it's almost like stepping into a Whole Foods, whereas all the the L.A. dispensaries are more like the old head shop or something. You know what I mean? Right, right. Um, one of the the arguments against legalization has been, uh, and again, I think you you do a nice job of sort of laying waste to this idea in the film, and that is that smoking pot. Uh, like smoke, you know, it, that, that, that's inhaling smoke from an herb is the worst way. Uh, to deliver a medicine because you used to say that it, smoking marijuana can increase your chances of getting lung cancer, just like smoking a cigarette. But you do a nice job, uh, or the people that you interview do a nice job of really disabusing of that. Uh, of that. Can you explain? Right. Well, there is, uh, you know, Dr. Abrams is a head oncologist at San Francisco General. You can Google his name, Dr. Donald Abrams. Um, incredibly, him and, and uh, Dr. Courtney are two of them. You know, and Professor Robert Melamed of Canada Science from Colorado are some of the the, the bigger, stronger personalities of the film. Um, there is a a study done uh, that I believe they studied fifty thousand people over ten years, and um, part of the group smoked only cigarettes. Another part of the group smoked nothing. The other part of the group smoked marijuana and cigarettes, the other part of the group only smoked marijuana. So you got these four groups out of 50,000 people. Um, the people that smoked nothing had a higher rate of cancer than the people that smoked just marijuana. There you go. And so the people that smoked marijuana only, the people that only smoked marijuana 
had a lower uh, incident of uh, lung cancer than any of them. And, you know, it was not statistically real significant, but it did show an overall trend on a very large number of people over a large amount of time. So it's, you know, it's basically showing that, you know, uh, consuming cannabinoids and not not overdoing it. Of course, if, if, if you're a, a smoked, you know, if you're the kind of guy that's smoking 10 joints a day, et cetera, et cetera, yeah, I mean, there's, you know, like burning things in your lungs is not good for you, but it's showing that like a good, small, steady flow of cannabinoids into your system basically does lower your chance of getting cancer. And... Uh, add to that uh, another important find from American Drug War II, and that is that the U.S. government took out a patent uh, on these cannabinoid oils. Explain what that's all about. Right. I mean, you know, but in 2006, the FDA put out an official press release stating that medical marijuana had absolutely no medical benefit. But in October of 2003, uh, the, the federal government, basically represented by the Department of Health and Human Services, uh, took out a patent for uh, cannabinoids as a neuroprotectant and antioxidant. And, um, you know, basically, you know, you just Google it. If anybody out there is listening to this, just Google uh, 2003 uh, patent for cannabinoids and print it out and put it in your glove box. And next time you get pulled over for smoking a joint, just show the cop to say, look who you're working for. <laughs> this is who you're working for here. Now, just uh, because, uh, ex- explain the, the significance for in order for a, for a government agency to take out a patent on something. What, I mean, uh, they they don't just do that willy nilly. Obviously, they would have conducted certain studies, or they have to show some efficacy. Or how does that work? Yeah, I mean, there there has to be proof that um, that it works. I mean, it's a long, slow process, as anybody knows. And 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 uh, um, you know what's what's so corrupt about it. Now is that you know you're finding out that our government is basically dealing behind the scenes with pharmaceutical companies and trying to control who is going to be able to make all the money off of this thing and and really the danger that that I see happening is that the pharmaceutical companies want to tear the plant down into uh, uh, all these little components and sell us all these medications like we were speaking about earlier about they don't like the fact that one medicine can be used to treat everything there's no money in that especially when you give in the fact that people can grow it now there's zero money so what they're you know basically the whole problem is is that in order for the FDA to uh, uh, process and, and pass a drug, it has to be patented. Like nobody, like in other words, no pharmaceutical company is going to process something to the FDA process unless they can patent it because they're, you know, they wouldn't make any money. So in order to patent something, it can only um, have so many, it can only have, I think, five compounds or five cannabinoids. It's very limited. And the problem is, is that the, the modern marijuana plant has over 60 cannabinoids. And you can't patent that. You can't patent a plant. So what they're having to do is they're having to, like, tear it down into pieces and patenting little bits and pieces of it. And meanwhile, the Department of Health and Services is back there, uh, you know, running around trying to, 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 like, make deals with all these pharmaceutical companies. And what's interesting on this Montana deal that we just discovered is that in Montana now, you're going to have to get your marijuana card from, drumroll, Department of Health and Human Services. Hmm. 
It's 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 ridiculous because I'm hearing you describe this. So, in other words, the the until until such time as as the government and the pharmaceuticals can figure out amongst themselves how they can get in on the action and profit from it, marijuana is going to remain uh, a Schedule One drug. Yeah, and the scheduling thing, you know, I, I think a lot of people get. You know, a lot, there's a lot of people, this big movement out there, people who say if we could just change the scheduling, then everything will be okay. But, I, you know, I've talked to a lot of experts and said that's just not true because uh, if I went and started making my own Vicodin and selling that, I would get arrested just as I would for Schedule 1. So the fact that it's Schedule 1, Schedule 2, Schedule 3 is not totally what's going to be changing it because it's still a controlled substance that you're not allowed to... And you're still not allowed to, like, manufacture or create your own controlled substance and sell it. Um, So the whole scheduling thing is a little deceptive, maybe on purpose. I'm not sure. Well, yeah, it it won't solve the problem. You're right, but uh, on scheduling it. But the fact that cannabis or marijuana is up there with with, uh, crystal meth and heroin and cocaine in that same category... Uh, just again yeah, no, speaks they, volumes they, yeah, of the they, they purpose, Yeah, they purposely done that, which is basically just old propaganda. To uh, really, what it is is just a, a category of everything that they can't make money off of. Is really all it is, right? They've taken here's all the drugs that, and it has to do with all the money because if there wasn't millions of people buying and selling marijuana, if there wasn't billions of dollars trading hands, they wouldn't really care, obviously. But they care so much because there is so much money. And again, and this is covered in the first drug war film, that if you take marijuana out of the entire drug war equation, 70% of the whole drug war is, is gone, and you're not going to have the, the money to support all the prisons and, and all these people who make a living uh, prosecuting people, the court systems, private prison industry, on and on. And so without marijuana being a part of this whole illegal drug pie, the pie is not big enough to support this huge industry that's been created. Yeah, it's become a make-work project for, uh, you know, the local constabulary and, and various other agencies because as also, as you point out in the film, uh, you know, a lot of these people now, you, there was a time when, you know, you could do life for possession of a couple of seeds. Uh, but now it's just, uh, you know, you might be uh, charged and processed and then you're out on the street. But even that, that's keeping police employed. Right, and I think one of the interesting things, too, in the film is, you know, we're talking to the guy that was uh, working on the Obama administration, and he's saying, you know, these guys, and another guy that worked to help uh, keep Prop 19, which was when they almost legalized recreational in California, and he's making the point, like, look, our prisons are not filled with marijuana users, you know, so it's a bunch of bull that, you know, that, that marijuana users are filling the prisons. That's just not true. And I think the the answer to that, I believe, is said by Dr. Robert Melamy from Cannabis Science in the film, is that uh, it's like, well, if it's if it's if you're not going to send the pr- people to prison, then why are you arresting them? Like, why are you arresting 800,000 people a year if you're not going to send them to prison? You know, and other so it's really just welfare for law enforcement. It's just you know what I mean. It's just it's, it couldn't even be more obvious. If you're not going to prosecute these people, then why are you arresting them at all? Right. Well, this all, maybe on the surface, seems somewhat innocuous, although denying, for example, uh, a cannabis oil to, to, to cancer patients uh, is, is not innocuous. I mean, that's just evil. But uh, I want to get into the other 
um, huge cost, and that is just in human lives. The number of people, uh, in, for example, in Mexico that were killed last year as a result of the, this drug turf war between cartels, was it, what, what's the number, 40 or 50,000 people well, murdered? The, the number is something around 55,000 in the last five years, so I believe the, is kind of the, the, the stat that's um, passed around. And uh, so you went down to uh, Juarez, Mexico, which is across the border from um, El Paso. What is significant about Juarez? Why Juarez, Mexico? Well, it's just such a, a powerful uh, drug route, and I was wanting to go somewhere that's outside of California. We're trying to, you know, basically trying to make the point a little bit too that that uh, because um, something I was trying to prove, and I don't really know if I totally tried to prove it. You know, sometimes you in documentary films, you set out to prove things, and 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 you could. And if you want to be a certain kind of filmmaker, you can pretend like you proved it through narration and B-roll, but I try to keep it honest. So I'm not 100% sure I proved this point. I got a lot of experts to weigh in and agree with me, and I tried to show footage and so forth. But one of the ideas I was trying to prove was to show how, because California has legalized, and there's so much good marijuana in California. I mean, California is saturated by good marijuana, where like there's really no there's no way there's like the cartels can't be shipping their crummy weed across the border through Tijuana anymore. So the crummy weed coming out of Mexico and it's not all crummy. Don't get me wrong, but it's, it, there's no way it's as good as California. Um, it, it's it's all pouring in through Mexico through Arizona. You know, it's coming through that way. So that's that's one of the reasons. And and basically, Juarez has just become it's not you know obviously the only place, but it's. It's become known as one of the ground zero for all the cartels fighting over the the route coming in that way. It's when you, I just basically, you know, I, I drove back to uh, Texas for the holidays, and it's a it's a huge pass. I mean, when you when you drive through like that overall pass, I mean, it's it's we're talking like hundreds and hundreds of miles of just open desert land of where you can cross. Uh, so the Gringo Pass. The Gringo yeah. Pass. And a lot of these drug runners, you interview one in the film who says that they're basically, they get help from, from people on inside the, the, uh, some of these drug enforcement agencies. They give them these... Um, Transponder, yeah. Well, that's tra- basically, yeah. He was saying that there's an actual route that pilots call Gringo Pass that comes up through uh, Tucson. Um, basically, you would, you know, if you're a pilot, you would take off out of Tucson and fly through, I think, Nagal, the Nagalas Pass. And... They call it Gringo Pass, and what Gringo Pass is, it's not really, you know, an exact route on a map, although it, it kind of could follow like a certain, you know, like through this mountain range, et cetera. Um, but what it is, is it's like you, you go to, you take this one certain route, and then they give you like a specific transponder number. Let, sorry to jump in, Kevin. Thing, sorry to interrupt. I got to jump in. We got a break coming up. We'll come back. We'll talk about Gringo Pass and American Drug War II. Kevin Booth. This is no place for the naive or the faint-hearted. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. That's what I hate about the war on drugs. I'll be honest with you. It's what I can't stand is all day long we see those commercials. Here's your brain. Here's your brain on drugs. Just say no. Why do you think they call it dope? And then the next commercial is this Bud's for you. Come on, everybody. Let's be hypocritical bastards. It's okay to drink your drug. We meant those other drugs, those untaxed drugs. Those are the ones that are bad for you.
right now today, there is so much violence today, not because people use drugs, but because they're illegal. That's why, you know, the people who benefit the most by all these laws, these are the drug cartels. They lobby to keep these laws in place because they can't exist without them. They're, you don't have the alcohol pones now because you don't have prohibition of alcohol. Prohibition is what is bad. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Welcome back. Kevin Booth from Sacred Cow Productions is uh, with us talking about his new documentary film, American Drug War II, Cannabis Destiny. First, uh, before we get back to Gringo Pass and how some of these uh, these pilots that are flying the drugs into America from places like Juarez, Mexico, are being helped from the inside by drug enforcement officials. Uh, tell us how we can see the film, when we can see the film, Kevin. <laughs> Uh, well, I mean, you're kind of like ahead of the pack if you want to know the truth, because we're we're still working out the final uh, sets of distribution. We're most likely going to have a small theatrical release. It's looking right now. Um, probably uh, first week in June will be in at least 16 cities simultaneously in theater. So I'll I'll keep you apprised of that, and and hopefully we'll be in Canada as well. Well, if there's anything so I can it, do, it'll it'll be you know once it comes out on video on demand, it'll be you know it'll it'll be everywhere on all the on all the cable channels and video on demand outlets, everything like that. But there there will be a small little theatrical run to start it off. Well, if there's anything I can do to help uh, you come up, up up here and screen it up in uh, in Toronto, the good you let me know. Um, I can uh, help plug you into some channels as well. So that sounds uh, awesome. I would love to bring my wolf dogs up to Canada. <laughs> I think I just think it is so important for people to see American Drug War Two. Um, so you know, we'll 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 speak about that. Um, in the future, but uh, back to Gringo Pass and and uh, these. To me, you know, the idea that that uh, these drug runners are being aided and abetted by by people inside drug enforcement agencies is, uh, you know, it's it's just off the off the charts. Uh, and and you were saying that they're giving them these these pilots are getting these secret transponder codes to uh, to avoid surveillance. Right. Well, you know, this is not a new story. I mean, this story dates. You know, this has been going on forever. Vietnam War, Iran Contra, it's been going on through, you know, through uh, the war in Afghanistan, with people bringing heroin over. So, you know, that's the problem. Wherever there's money to be made, wherever there's big amounts of easy money to be made, people are always going to go go for it. I mean, I can't say that I blame them. You know, when 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 you talk, you know, people talk about like, oh, did the, the CIA really bring cocaine and all that? Well, it's just certain people decided to do it. And you, you give people that have the ability to fly over the border to be able to bring in a shipment. Somebody, some guy who, who makes $50,000 a year can, can make $500,000 in one day. Um, you know, I mean, how, how is it not going to happen? Of course it's going to happen. And so, yes, I mean, it's the same story over and over again, and it's going to continue to be the same story as long as uh, prohibition is in place, because prohibition is basically making worthless plants more valuable than gold. And so, you know, as long as that's that's in place, uh, this this behavior will be in place. And it's not; it has nothing to do with stopping the drugs or stopping like what's fueling the drugs or the need for drugs. That's that's a whole other. That's a whole other chapter. Let's move away from cannabis and, and talk about another deeply disturbing aspect of, of what's going on uh, in North America, not just in the United States. It's going on here in Canada, and that is the, the over-medication of our children. Uh, and I know that, you're, um, uh, that you and your um, lovely bride are foster parents. 
Uh, tell us about what you discovered um, after taking uh, in uh, a, a young foster uh, a daughter. Right. Well, this is uh, the first foster child we brought in. This is not uh, Andrea, who's actually upstairs listening right now. <laughs> and uh, um, our, our first uh, foster daughter we brought in, we, we, we only had her for a few months, and the whole point was to reunite her with her mother who had just gotten out of prison. But when she came to us, um, you know, this here, this little girl gets brought to our house. She's 11 years old, and this, this people come to our house, and suddenly, you know, she's got to take this pill, she's got to take this pill, she's got to take this pill, she's got to take this pill. It's just like, whoa, for real? You know, I've never met a little kid that needs to take all these pills, you know? And when you talk to her, she's like, yeah, I never had to take pills but before I, you know, got taken away from my mom. You know, I, I didn't, you know, I didn't have all these things that they saying I have, you know, before I got taken away from my mom. I got taken away from my mom and suddenly I've got to take this. And we found out that this girl had been in a, in a group home. And basically it's an industry. I mean, you know, the, your average foster home is not doing it to adopt or to add on to their family like, like we are because we can't have children. Uh, they do it for money. And so when you're doing it for money, as most people are here, uh, the name of the game is how many kids can we get into our house all at once. And the more and problem then, children you have, the more you ratchet it up the uh, the amount of money right, you take. Exactly. In. So the, the more kids you get in your house, the more money, and and the more problems. Like you, like you know, you can categorize these kids as they go up these categories, and and every time if it, you have a kid like, oh God, if a kid threw something at you or like threatens you, like oh my God, you can like quadruple the amount of money you get. Along, along okay. with that comes like they, you drug them more. All right, we'll take a time out. Yeah. We'll come back and we'll talk about um, the overmedication of our children. Back with more of Kevin Booth on the Conspiracy Show. If you're sure your phone isn't tapped, call now 416 360 0740 or toll free in Ontario at 1 866 740 4740. The drug war is a total failure, and the federal drug war ought to be re revisited and, for the most part, gotten rid of. She talked to parents who have lost their children to drugs. Right. And they will inevitably say that they started off with marijuana. They probably started off with milk and then went to beer, and then they went to bourbon, and then they might have gone to marijuana. The gateway theory doesn't work. Maybe. It's a reality. Passcodes, personal identification numbers, social insurance numbers. If they make you wonder how private they are, here's two more numbers. 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. We'll try to squeeze your calls in before the, uh, the top of the hour here in conversation with Kevin Booth, who is an American film and video producer, Sacred Cow Productions, and his new film, American Drug War to Cannabis, A Destiny. And Kevin, we were talking about uh, uh, being a foster parent, and uh, you brought this young uh, woman, a girl, uh, 11 years old, 11 years old, into your house, and uh, you were ordered uh, to administer these drugs to her. She was taking, what, sleeping pills to go to bed, and then essentially a version of speed to wake up. Is that, isn't that right? Yeah, Adderall. I mean, I don't know how popular Adderall is in Canada, but I mean, it is. It's huge here in America. I mean, the college kids all take it to to uh, cram the books, and it's Adderall has become like a real popular uh, phenomenon here in the states. In fact, there's you actually hear on the news sometimes like Adderall shortages because so many people are taking it all at once. So, yeah, she came to us from a group home that had ten other children in it simultaneously. Um, 
the children were all put to bed at 7 o'clock at night with sleeping pills, and then they were all woken up at 6 in the morning and giving Adderall uh, then to go to school. And, I mean, I'll be honest with you, I mean, she was taking like 30 milligrams a day, and I'm like, breaking the law by even saying this, but, I mean, I just tried like a, like a, like I'm talking like a, a sliver of one of these things, and I thought I was going to have a heart attack. Oh, my and Lord. Little, she's 11. Girl, she's 11. Yeah, she's 11, and she's like the size of a rail, too. I mean, did you, when when she was in your home, did she have any sort of behavioral problems which would demand that she be no, taking No, 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 like that, no, no. And who ordered her to take these? Was it a, a doctor or a caseworker or a social it's worker? It's like, yeah, I mean, basically the, the people that run these groups, it's, it's really what you find out about. It's, it's like, it, imagine if you had to fly a bunch of animals uh, in a plane, and what would you do? You'd probably give them all Valium, right? So these people that run these group homes, they they treat the children like cattle, and, and that it's like, okay, it's all time to go to bed. Everybody needs to go to bed now, like, take the pill. So everybody's time to wake up and go to school, take the pill. And it just basically, um, as uh, Stephen Downing in the movie, who's like the former deputy chief of police of LAPD, says, it's like, you know, he says, we don't drug our children, and, and people don't mean to do it, but it's really it's the institutions that our children end up in, and they do it to just basically keep the log jam. And, I mean, you could sit there and go, oh, people are evil, this are evil, but the reality is is that there's, 30, there's over 35,000 children caught up in the foster system in L.A. County alone. That's just this one county. 35,000 children are caught up in the system, and it's just, you know, we're, we're dealing – with an institution that's completely outdated of the concepts and it is just completely broken down. And so uh, pharmaceutical drugs have just been, uh, become a way to kind of just control all the, the, the social side effects of everything to, to as a way to, you know, treating these children like animals, in my opinion. Well, I, I, everything is upside down. We have drug enforcement officials raiding uh, um, a medical marijuana lab shutting them down or denying cannabis oil to young children dying of cancer when the cannabis oil was was uh, reversing the cancer. So we have that scenario. And then we have, on the flip side, we have young children being forced to take speed and sleeping pills. And if you refuse to administer the, these drugs to, to your foster daughter, she would have been removed from your home, I'm guessing. Yeah, yeah, they just take them away from you. You know, you're not gonna, we're not going to get in trouble or anything like that. We'll just be removed. Uh, let's say hello to James, who is in Toronto. James, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Hi, uh, I'm James Conner. I'm the administrator of Millions Against Monsanto, Toronto. Um, I'd like to add to this by saying that uh, the, the whole reason that this is happening, basically, is, I mean, we're talking conspiracy. Monsanto basically wants to take control of the world's food supply. And the reason that marijuana has had such a hard time is because it's something they can't take control of. It's a, and it basically is a cure-all. It, it basically is a cure for cancer and many other things. All right, yeah, I think... I, I, yeah, I agree. I mean, actually, uh, the movie starts off with a little comedy sketch where when I was young, my dad used to cover everything with weed spray, uh, weed killer, and there's actually like a little... Get, for lack of a better term, with a really great famous actor named Rick Overton uh, playing my dad, where we make a joke about how Monsanto is trying to like put a you know finally taking control of this whole out of control Mother Nature thing, and so you know the name Monsanto actually comes up in the film, but we kind of you know treat it in a 
a little bit of a tongue-in-cheek way, but we, we, we dropped that name in there. And cause there's a lot of other films that actually go directly after Monsanto, but I, I completely agree with you and know what you're talking about for sure. How many? Do, uh, I'm not sure if this statistic comes up in the uh, in American Drug War Two. Uh, although I think specifically you mentioned Florida and the number of deaths attributed in one year to OxyContin. Uh, but do you have any handle on how many people uh, in the United States die from even taking prescribed drugs in the proper way? Yeah, well, I mean, on top of that, and there's just not enough time to go through all these stats, but. People, uh, there's insane amounts of deaths from people just taking Tylenol and Advil. There's there's incredible like uh, death stats uh, for cold medications and just even like antacid pills and just crazy things you would never even think of as being dangerous or like have like way more death stats than all the illegal drugs combined. Uh, so it's just you know there, there's just no argument you know and, and and the only argument these 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 drug warriors can ever come up with is this whole two wrongs don't make a right you know thing and it's just they know they're wrong and you know and, and when you get them on the fence and you get them alone they they can never argue it they just it's almost like they're just having to play out a sketch or they're just playing a character but you know they're they're still getting a paycheck and as long as they're getting a paycheck they're gonna they're gonna support this agenda you know there's a lot of hope when uh, uh, Barack Obama uh, came into office, so, uh, you know, uh, a change we can believe in and, and uh, uh, all of that. And, of course, we never get the, the change that we vote for. But uh, he talked publicly about wanting to decriminalize marijuana. Uh, he, he talked, you know, there was a lot of hope uh, on this front from, from this administration, and it never materialized. Why do you think that is? Because I think... The old powers that be kind of came in and knocked him back down to basically show him like he was in control. And at the end of the day, you know, the dollar, the you know, the dollar is king, or I forgot what the exact saying is, but it's you know the, the money, in the money from all the pharmaceutical corporations and tobacco and alcohol and all the power and lobby interests that are basically fighting to keep marijuana from being legalized. Uh, at the end of the day, just. They're just unstoppable. One of the uh, uh, interesting points, and another one of the interesting points raised in the film, and, and you talk about when you uh, you were driving down the street one day and you saw the same drugstore on opposite sides of the street. I mean, I, I see that up here in Canada. You might have a Tim Hortons or, or a Starbucks, uh, you know, on, on the northeast corner and then on the southwest corner. Uh, but you saw the same drugstore on the on, you know on the same street right across from each other, the proliferation of drug stores, uh, you know they're shutting down bookstores and they're sh- shutting down grocery stores in neighborhoods, but there are more and more drug stores popping up everywhere. I mean that speaks volumes, okay. doesn't it? Yeah, it's crazy. I mean we have CVS now and CVS, and, uh, yeah, yeah. Here in, in Studio City, down the hill from where I live in this neighborhood, there's there's over like there's about thirty major pharmacies. I'm not talking about little pharmacies. I'm talking about like big pharmacies about 30 major pharmacies in a two-mile radius, um, which is pretty insane in my opinion. And so while on the news they're like going like, there's more marijuana dispensaries than there are Starbucks. It's the end of the world. It's the end of the world. You go driving around, and it's pharmacy, 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 pharmacy. And then you even get to the point where it's just like there's, you know, not even like two different pharmacies across the street, but it's just like Starbucks where you're going, oh, my God, there's like a giant CVS on this corner across the street from a giant CVS. It's like, it's like you can't cross the street. Like, I need I need to get my prescription from CVS. I'm too lazy to cross the street. 
like you got to have one on both street corners. It's like incredible, and it just they're just going and going. Like there's a uh, a story that we put in the film about them closing a, a neighborhood Barnes and Noble that had become like the favorite meeting place for uh, kids and and uh, you know the whole neighborhood. And uh, what went up instead of the Barnes and Noble was a CVS. Mm. Well, yeah, we do love our prescription drugs, don't we? Um, there's we got to leave folks with some good news here. Uh, and I and I think there is some good news in the film. I mean, you, I'm very impressed by the, some of the uh, the people that are working. Uh, you know, getting back to cannabis ag- again. The, um, the uh, you mentioned the Dr. Abrams, an oncologist who who's uh, conducted these very uh, reliable studies on uh, the efficacy of of um, marijuana. Uh, you also have, as you pointed out, this 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 organization called Cannabis Science. Now, are you hopeful that that uh, the, the the folks at Cannabis Science that this is the way really through their you know efforts to educate uh, people this is the way that we're finally going to come to our senses get the drag the government to their senses in terms of uh, of the the benefits of of cannabis. Well, I mean, you know, I don't. I think basically Cannabis Science is a corporation, it's a company run by some like highly evolved, really cool, smart people whose heart is in the right place, but they're. You know they're playing the game. You know they're, they've decided that they're going to play the game, and they're not going to try to reinvent the wheel as far as like how the FDA works and how the whole process works because it's silly to think you're going to do that. And so they're they're working at you know playing the game like any other drug to basically get actual natural plant derivatives pushed through the FDA process. And it could be a long process, but you know they've gone public, and and uh, you know it's a lot of good things happening around them. Uh, and again, um, let, let's uh, just spend a, a moment telling us uh, a little bit about Sacred Cow Productions. Uh, the, the website I've linked up to you, uh, to, to Sacred Cow on my website, so it's sacredcowproductions.com, uh, and there people can go and learn more about American Drug War II, Cannabis Destiny. Um, there's also, of course, um, uh, the Bill Hicks story that you're working on. Tell us a little bit about that. Uh, well, I'm not now. I mean, the Bill Hicks movie already came out. There was like the last Bill Hicks. You know, I've got you know, I, I produced a lot of Bill's uh, movies and records after he passed away. And um, you know, there's talk that that Russell Crowe has bought the rights to do like a Bill Hicks biopic. But you know, these guys in England, uh, Matt Harlock, and uh, put out a, a film called American: The Bill Hicks Story. It's a really great documentary. That's the one I'm referring to. Yeah, American. The yeah, Bill. yeah. If anybody hasn't seen that and you're a Hicks fan, you should definitely check that one out. It's 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 everywhere. You can Netflix it, Amazon, and you know iTunes everywhere. Um, so yeah. Listen, and, uh, uh, as far as uh, as far as the website, you know. Uh, also, you know, go to. We'll start working on American Drug War. I mean, basically, you know, if you go to AmericanDrugWar.com right now, it's still the old film. But like, you know, as soon as like the new trailer for the new film comes up and and all that. And like I said, I mean, you're you're way ahead of the pack. I mean, I'm not, I'm not like on some tour junket right now for the film. You just happen to come along. You didn't even know I had this new film. You just happened to come along at the exact moment when I was getting this thing ready. So That's you're, right. You're way ahead of the pack, brother. Uh, finally. Um, uh... I know that uh, Cashy's uh, dad uh, um, has put together sort of an organization. Or what can you tell us ab- about that? Uh? Right. Well, just Google Cash High Foundation, and uh, it's really you know they they're really working. It's a really professional deal, and they're they're you know, going around to all the little uh, children's uh, cancer hospitals all over the country, and they they bring these things called reggae runners, or like these little toy cars that the cancer patients, little children can play around in, and they can put their IV. 
uh, bags and everything up on on this stand. And so it, it's basically, um, um, you know, just just a way to serve a little cashy and um, just help other children going through just the most unbelievable hard, harsh thing. I mean, it's just it's just mind blowing to think of what it must be like to just be born into this world and then get cancer. You know, mm. just, until you witness it firsthand, you just, it's just like, it's just unbelievable. An unimaginable uh, horror. I don't know how, you know, parents uh, cope and survive. I don't know that you ever do. But uh, listen, again, congratulations on American Drug War Two. We'll talk about uh, seeing how we can get you up here and screening that up in uh, in Toronto. I know it would be received love, very well. I would love to. Yeah, that sounds absolutely great. We will do it. Kevin, thank you for this. Thank you so much. I look forward to seeing you soon. Okay. Kevin Booth, American Drug War II Cannabis Destiny. RichardSerrett.com is the website. And say hello at Richard Serrett. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome, welcome. Just want to uh, once again say hello to KROSAM 1340, Davenport, Iowa, the heartland of America, and um, the Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. We're very proud to welcome them, KROSAM 1340, as our new affiliate. That brings our total to uh, 10, not including the the flagship station here, uh, AM740 Zuma Radio in Toronto. Uh, so we just hope that number continues to grow and grow and grow. And I know that there are a number of uh, 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 affiliates sort of pending uh, out there as well. And, and in the coming uh, days and weeks, hopefully, we'll be uh, welcoming even more new affiliates uh, to the Conspiracy Show family. But again, KROSAM 1340 Davenport, Iowa. Hello and welcome and thank you for, uh, thank you for uh, giving us a try. Uh, 
I think I've mentioned I've I spent uh, my weekends at a, lo- a large portion of them at the uh, the Thornhill Community Center, which is about five minutes from where uh, I'm living, and uh, I take the boys there uh, for the public skate Saturdays and Sundays, and um, I had a wonderful uh, sort of moment, a Canadian moment today. Uh, the boys now uh, they don't they no longer need their skating buddies, so they're sort of flying around the rink on their own. Uh, and just I'm just uh, over the over the moon watching them, uh, but there was an elderly man who I la- later learned was uh, came to this country from uh, Taiwan, and I would I would estimate he was in his uh, early to mid seventies, uh, but in pretty good shape, and he was sort of uh, he was out on the ice, but you know grabbing hold of the boards, not wanting to uh, to let go. Uh, and then every once in a while he'd let go and, and try a few uh, a few steps on the skates, and um, he was uh, he happened to be taking a break sitting in the uh, in the penalty box, and I was sitting beside him uh, adjusting one of my little guy's helmets, and uh, so the gentleman, as in a very soft voice, said, "Excuse me, sir," he said, "I, I couldn't help but notice uh, you know you're teaching your, sk- your your children to skate and and you're pretty good on your skates and so forth," and uh, he said, "Could you teach me how to stop?" <laughs> which is always a good thing to know, uh, you know, when you're learning to skate. And so I, I, um, I went out there and uh, I, I just, I'm not a great instructor, but, and, and when you've been doing things sort of naturally for, for, you know, I've been on skates probably 45 years. So I, best I could, I tried to explain to him, uh, you know, how to shift your weight and so forth and, and, uh, and uh, you know, use the edge of your skates to stop and, uh I said, you know, but I, I sort of cautioned him. I said, first, you know, you really need to go out and get a helmet. And, and, and so he was very appreciative. Uh, but I thought about it. I said, what a wonderful sort of quintessential Canadian moment. Uh, here I am, a Canadian, uh, born on skates. And the, uh, this, this gentleman who just within the last five years had come to Canada from Taiwan. And here he is embracing the culture, trying to learn to skate at, at that age, you know, in his early 70s, asking me to help him to learn how to skate or to you know, one aspect of skating. I just was very touched, and I never felt more Canadian, I think, in my entire life uh, uh, than I did uh, this uh, this afternoon at the uh, Thornhill Community Center. So whoever that gentleman was, I'm sure I'll run run into him again at the rink, and uh, I wish him good skating and good stopping. All right. Um, I want to talk about... This is something we talk about a lot uh, on the program uh, when we when we talk about UFOs and we talk about various aspects of of um, the UFO phenomena, and one of them is the alien abduction phenomenon, which is very harrowing, and it's kind of a, I think one of the uglier, darker aspects of the UFO or ET phenomenon. And that is, of course, people who claim that they have been snatched from their beds and taken aboard some craft and probed and prodded, and and sometimes uh, they are they are left scarred for life. Emotionally, they are traumatized, and who wouldn't be? Uh, those that remember it often, uh, you know, through uh, under under hypnosis and so forth. But one of the the more chilling aspects of this is that although these claims are often made by adults, sometimes young children, young children, report similar experiences. Uh, they report being abducted. Uh, and these child reports often feature very specific details that that are that have a lot in common with reports of abductions made by adults, including the circumstances, the narrative, the entities, the aftermaths of the alleged uh, occurrences. And these young abductees, as it turns out, often have family members who have been 
who have also reported having uh, abduction experiences. Uh, they also involve uh, family and in, uh, include family involvement in the military or a residence near a military base. It's also common amongst child abduction claimants. And as I started to to, uh, to read about these child abduction cases, I thought it was high time that we delved into this subject specifically. So we're going to talk about cradle robbers, alien abductions uh, of children. And to uh, help us along with this, uh, two members of the New York Strange Phenomena Investigators, NYSPI, they're headquartered in Manhattan, the scientific research group dedicated to the systematic investigation of UFO sightings, UFO abduction reports, and related extraordinary occurrences. Again, two of their members, uh, Oliver Von Kamensky and Jed Turnbull, join me on the line from Manhattan. Good evening to you both, or I should say good morning. Oliver, Jed, how are you? Hello there, Richard. Thank you. Thank thank you for having me. And it was a a great uh, meeting both of you uh, in New York this past fall at the... uh, the uh, New Yorker Hotel, got a chance to sit down with both of you. Now, Oliver, you're the, the, one of the founders of, uh, of NYSPI, is that correct? That is correct, yes. NYSPI has been around for approximately six or seven years. Uh, uh, all of its members, well, four of its key members, were all members of uh, Bud Hopkins Intruders Foundation, and uh, the late Bud Hopkins, who recently passed away, uh, we basically organized, arranged a new uh, the Nice Buy group uh, to carry on his work and his research, uh, and uh, fine pointed a little bit more uh, towards the uh, various different various different phenomena related uh, to the abduction scenarios. And Jed, you bring um, a very specialized skill set to this, this, uh, the study of this phenomenon. You're a, a licensed psychotherapist. How do you right. em- employ that skill with regard to the alien abduction phenomenon? Well, that's a good question, Richard. Obviously, there are many adults that um, we now know of that are claiming to be uh, abducted by aliens. And what we've found in our research is that there's a very powerful intergenerational quality to the abduction phenomena. In other words, if it's happening to, for instance, an adult, it's very likely that their own parents have had some kind of an experience and, even more importantly and relevant to our conversation tonight, Richard, the children, their children uh, are more than likely having experiences as well. So, and that's my emphasis on that because obviously these can be very, very traumatic events. How do you find out about these child abduction cases? I throw this question out to either of you. Uh, uh, sure this is Oliver. Uh, I, for years and years, I was manning the front lines of the Intruders Foundation, and we would get emails and letters and correspondences from all around the world, telephone calls, people telling us that uh, they were having their missing time experiences and you know i would say the vast majority of these emails were you know emails that uh, we wouldn't respond to uh, that we could automatically call out i would say you know maybe five percent of those had the earmarks of cases that we found reasonable incredible um, met very staunch criteria of uh, of credibility 
And uh, those are the ones that we started pursuing and carrying on the work of the Intruders Foundation through NISPY. We continue getting letters from all around the world from parents that uh, fear that their children are experiencing the same types of things that they were experiencing as they were children or that their parents had told them that they had experienced. So it's 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 usually uh, a generational phenomenon. So you're you're being contacted by parents who are concerned that it's happening to their children as it happened to them. Yes, that's correct, Richard. If I can chime in, this is Jed. Uh, parents parents uh, are the primary people who will get a hold of us and and um, out of uh, out of fear, not so much for themselves, but certainly for their children in the sense that they feel so helpless. They cannot prevent this from happening. They cannot defend their children from these, from these experiences, experiences that they themselves have, have gone through and suffered through. So um, it's that sense of desperation, you know, and it kicks in all kinds of primal fears of child protection and, uh, you know, uh, these kind of things that, um, you know, come instinctively to us. And, we get we get a lot of that, but it's through, it's through the parents that we usually uh, find out about the children. Are you allowed to to interview the children? Well, uh, that's a touchy matter uh, because anytime we work with children, uh, it can be it can be volatile. Uh, children uh, inherently can be very defended about this, and that's that's not a bad thing because. Their defenses may make it into a playful thing. They may make this phenomenon into something that that they've been able to sort of, uh, you know, deal with on a mental level, uh, concomitant with their age group. But when you start like probing a little too much or uncovering a little a little more than they may be ready for, then the realities of what might be happening to to them can be very very scary. And so it's a delicate issue, and for the most part, it's not a really good idea to to uh, you know go too far with children because of uh, all sorts of things. For example, one case that I've worked with, a parent parent of a nine-year-old girl came in, and um, she had seen some images of of uh, aliens on television, and it, it just brought back a bunch of memories of this child. Uh, 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 a bunch of fears that she was having all of a sudden, you know, typical, typical uh, symptoms of post-traumatic stress came in, like you know, sleeplessness, inability to eat, um, lowering the grades at school, you know, uh, suffering from interpersonal issues with her friends. And so it, it's very, very delicate. Um, you, you, you have to probe things very carefully with children, um, and you have to do that at all times with the permission of the parent, you know, as a guiding force here, because the parent really is most responsible for what may be happening to their child. So it's a concerted effort, and I, I just very much caution about going too far with children, even though all signs seem to point to the fact that what they say is happening to them is happening to them. All right, Oliver von Kamensky and Jed Turnbull, uh, Jed Turnbull from uh, New York Strange Phenomena Investigators here on The Conspiracy Show as we discuss cradle robbers, aliens that abduct children. Back with more. Stay with us. Question everything. 
This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. Army officers say the missile, found sometime last week, has been inspected at Roswell, New Mexico, and sent to Wright Field, Ohio, for further inspection. Ramey says that so far as can be determined, no one saw the object in the air, and he describes it as being made of some sort of tinfoil. Other Army officials say that further information indicates that the object had a diameter of about 20 to 25 feet, and that nothing in the apparent construction indicated any capacity for speed, and that there was no evidence of a power plant. But this also appeared too flimsy to carry a man. Let me tell you why you're here. You're here because you know something. What you know you can't explain, but you feel it. You felt it your entire life, that there's something wrong with the world. You don't know what it is, but it's there, like a splinter in your mind, driving you mad. It is this feeling that has brought you to me. The owners of the system are asleep. Now we can play. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Welcome back. Oliver Ron Kamensky and Jed Turnbull are with me from New York Strange Phenomena Investigators, Nye Spies, it's called, and we're talking about uh, alien abductions involving children. Now, one of the things that I've read, and uh, Oliver and Jed, you can uh, confirm or deny or disabuse me of this, but that, that with children, uh, because these abductions are happening in their, their formative years... Uh, they tend to sort of absorb the experience, um, assimilate the experience, if you will, into their sort of developing worldview. So uh, just by virtue of being in that, in that formative stage of development. So it, 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 uh, where an, whereas an adult, they might initially doubt their sanity or their veracity of what they, they believe happened to them. Not so with the children. With children. They, they know for certain that it happened to them. Is that correct? Uh, I would say yes and no. Uh, largely, the letters that we get are, are, we never get letters from children, but we always get letters and emails and phone calls from frightened, frightened parents who want to protect their children. And their, their children report nosebleeds, uh, monsters, froze, they're frozen, unable to move, floating up off the beds, you know, lying on cold metal tables, being poked by needles, very frightened having seen little people with big scary eyes coming through the walls and through the through through the ceilings sneaking you know sneaking and hiding into their into their brothers and sisters room curling up in a ball hoping that these entities don't approach them and then they're afraid to tell their parents what happened so do they assimilate some of their things yes other things they're just afraid to tell their parents that they're experiencing what do you hear that they'll get mad that's a good point, Ollie, and if I could just chime in here, Richard. Yes. Um, what you might be referring to is is a quality of deniability that children might have. They might they may be tricked or, or for, for some psychological phenom- uh, um, uh, uh, defense mechanism may, may be in denial about what's really going on and see this as a playful event. And that's a very, as I said before, a very important Thing because underneath that is the reality is that these these abductees uh, uh, children or adults 
are treated very much the same way in a very methodical, clinical, um, impersonal kind of a way, regardless of, of what, of what the, the children may believe is happening to them. Children often will communicate, if they don't want to talk about something, they'll often draw pictures. Um, have you seen illustrations or pictures drawn by these children uh, of, of an alleged abduction? Or... Oh, yes, that's quite a number. Mm-hmm. In fact, Jed could probably talk to this as well as I can. You know, uh, there's, uh, we encourage play therapy or art therapy, abstract methods of communicating with children, because children, uh, they need to act out their experiences because they can't always verbally uh, uh, verbalize what's occurred to them uh, with their limited vocabulary and experience. So, yes, we've had a number of, fo- of uh, drawings, usually with crayons or, uh, or pen and pencil, and they'll mm-hmm. draw what they see with their limited ability to draw. Judd, do you agree? Yes, I, I do agree. And, and what's interesting about uh, some of the drawings is not only is it, a, is it a, a, a much better medium for children to communicate and, and relate what may be going on with them, but there are distinctions that really discern between the uh, what, what, what they see and what they claim to be this this alien that comes in the night so to speak as as compared to other other things that they readily distinguish from uh, cartoon images uh, that they see on TV of, of ghosts or bears or uh, even even uh, skeleton heads those kind of things they, they really can distinguish uh, very clearly. That, uh, what they mean when they are doing uh, drawings and creating things through artwork. So that's a, that's a very good way to kind of get at some of the some of the things that may be happening to them. Can you describe some of the depictions you've seen in the children's artwork? Uh, in my experience, they're very it, it, they're very similar to the ones in adult. Maybe a little, of course, cruder. Uh, they they tend to be centered around uh, beans that have a palish uh, gray or white sort of uh, skin, huge eyes. The eyes are, are always the, the focal point of any abduction, child or adult. Um, they tend to be, again, you know, three to four feet high. Um, and you can see that in the drawings. That comes through in the drawings because in, in the same drawing they will draw one of these one of these aliens in comparison to an adult in, in like for instance in one case there's a child that was co-abducted with their parents and they, they saw their parents being taken too and along with them and along with these these gray aliens and they could then draw comparisons of the the, the height of their mother and the height of the alien and the height of themselves in this in this uh, piece of art, and you could readily see the the differences and the clearness of it. So, right. what, what you lot often, I'm sorry, sorry, I'm sorry, Jack. What you often see also are are very large, as you mentioned, very large eyes, and we see a lot of depictions of hands drawn. Clearly, hands with only four fingers as opposed to five fingers. Now, there'll be a picture yeah. of the child next to. Uh, this uh, monster that they've either imagined or they've experienced, and you know they'll clearly have five fingers, and the monsters will have three or four. So uh, it's consistent with reports that we get as well from what adults see. And I think, yeah, I agree, Ali. 
And the, the key word is consistency. We, we see the same thing over and over and over again. We don't see these alien uh, creatures or beings um, depicted with ray guns like you'd expect out of a sci-fi movie. You see them with, what, four fingers, you know, and, and that will be over and over again with children and or adults uh, that are unrelated to each other from different parts of the country, different parts of the world, uh, this consistency over and over again. Very clear. But you'll also sometimes get some uh, confusing images where uh, I guess a child will try to interpret something he doesn't quite understand. I had uh, this one ch- uh, parent that told me that his, that his child would constantly complain about why, why he would be pricked with things that looked like spines on, on, the, on the alien's hands, um, and they would, they would push into his chest and cause him to bleed. And uh, no, that's not saying that what he actually saw is what occurred, but that may be a screen memory, for instance, or something that he's interpreted as happening. How are these children affected? Uh, uh, I mean, how does this play out in terms of their, their development? Uh, I don't know if you've done sort of not long-term studies, but have been able to track any of these children as they progress uh, into their adolescence and so forth. For example, do do do... Alleged uh, abductees, children, uh, do they tend to do uh, poorly in school, or are there any any sort of red flags? That's that's a very very important question, Richard. Uh, ch- many children know that they've had strange experiences, and one of the first uh, first uh, uh, side effects of that is isolation. They know that their friends in the schoolyard have not had these kind of experiences. If they have been, uh, in a sense, foolish enough to, to confide in some of their classmates. They, it's created ridicule and cruelty. And the AI have uh, one parent who had to change uh, her daughter from from a school because it got so bad, this kind of ridicule. Later in life, they, these feelings of isolation continue. They're afraid to tell anyone for fear of uh, you know losing their friends and, and even being ridiculed as an adult. When they get, you know, when they get older, they, they, they wonder if they should ever have a boyfriend or girlfriend or any kind of relationship because eventually this is going to come up because it's been such a, uh, such a traumatic part of their life. You know, they wonder if they should ever have children, get married and have children because they're aware of the intergenerational phenomena of this, of this, um, uh, of this happening uh, to their parents and so, and so they, 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 they hesitate whether they want to have children who, again, they will not be able to prevent it from happening to them. And so it, it has a very lasting effect that ripples through their entire lives. I've talked to a number of alleged abductees over the years, and um, uh, either through uh, regression therapy or uh, other means, they were able to recall that as children, when they were uh, visited, uh, they talked a lot of them talk about uh, balls of light and something they called psychic toys. Uh, has this ever come up in in your uh, investigations where 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 children would see these balls of light in their room and and uh, I don't know whether they were they were being used to develop their psychic abilities or a way of uh, the way a, let's say a physical ball helps develop coordination and athletic abilities. I've come across them in many cases that uh, I've researched, uh, but there's no clear explanation 
why these balls are used, there's assumptions, and the ones you've made are, are indeed assumptions, but nothing to clearly delineate what those balls might be. But yes, Richard, we have seen it. There is, and, and if I could add to that, there, there is um, some consistent evidence that when these children are abducted, they've been put together in rooms with, if, well, if you'll allow me, hybrid children or alien children, and toys are, are, are sometimes played with and exchanged, and it's almost like there's this reciprocal kind of learning process, and the kind of light balls and, and uh, levitating balls that you're referring to have been reported consistently in those kind of experiences when these, ch- these children from apparently two universes uh, have been brought together. Do any of these children uh, display... Um, abilities uh, that might be attributed to the abduction experience, whether a heightened psychic ability or uh, telekinesis or any of these sorts of things? Uh, temporarily. Uh, and that's, that's true with adults, too. But they, those, those kind of abilities tend to sort of fade out as a, uh, uh, over a period of days or weeks. But, but uh, there is, there is uh, some, some evidence to that effect that they that they have some kind of um, they have some kind of opening or some kind of some kind of uh, um, uh, mental process that that would be considered extra ordinary to to most of us. Can you say, Ollie? Uh, well, actually, Jed, I think you and I are not on the same page with that. I, I have not. Mm-hmm. I, I've heard suggestions of that, but I've never seen any validation of those claims. But Mm-hmm. I guess we have different research. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 just been reported with uh, with some of the adults that I've worked with, and you know they've reported it with your children, but it fades over a period of days, you know, a week week or two at the most. And why that is, uh, who knows? What do you say to these parents? I mean uh, that. Uh... I mean, I can't imagine. It's one thing, you know, to worry about your child uh, getting home, getting to school or getting home from school safely or, you, you know, you fret, you turn around at, at the shopping mall and you lose sight of your child just for an instant. And, of course, your heart leaps into your throat. But how do you, how do you comfort a parent uh, who is fearful that their child is being abducted on a nightly or a weekly or a monthly basis? What, what could you possibly say to them? That's what I do a lot of. I, I speak quite a bit to uh, parents on those lines uh, who do contact our organization. Uh, one of the main things that I, I tell them is uh, that never before in the history of our work have we ever come across a case where a child has been uh, been reported missing and not returned. Um, I mean, there's actual reports of experiences where parents say the child is missing from the home and returned at a later time or another day. So those are extremely scary cases because these people, these parents are beside themselves, you know, not able to protect their children. So trying to reassure them that they're not alone in reporting those experiences as well as letting them know that we've never before had a case of a missing child those two things are about the the best we can offer unfortunately other than allowing them uh, an ear to tell to tell their concerns and perhaps put them in contact with other 
parents that claim the same things of their children. Yeah, this is this is a very very difficult point here because because where the a child may have been a part of a car accident or or some other trauma event, um, the parent can can pretty much reassure the child that 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 happened and it's in the past. That doesn't mean any time they're going to get in the car and go through that same intersection, it's going to happen again. But this phenomenon has its own uniqueness in the fact that this can happen over and over and over again as, as abductees are consistently reported. So the parent has no guarantee that it isn't going to happen to the child again. And, of course, they feel tremendous helplessness in the fact that they cannot prevent this and they cannot do anything about uh, the abductee uh, or, or children being abducted. All right. Uh, Jed, stay, uh, stay put. Oliver, you stay where you are. We'll come back and continue to discuss mm-hmm. the uh, abduction of children by aliens. Here on The Conspiracy Show, my name is Richard Sterrett. Don't go away. Big Brother is listening, and so are you, to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To speak with Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free in Ontario at one 866 740-4740. I think it's time to open the books uh, on, on uh, questions that have remained in the dark, on the, on the question of, of government investigations of, of UFOs. It's time to find out what, what the truth really is that's out there. Uh, we ought to do it really because it's right. We ought to do it because the American people, quite frankly, can handle the truth. And we ought to do it because it's the law. The question arises, what are these UFOs, the ones that pass the test of not being put aside as fireballs and planets? Or what, what, what do they be? And that, of course, is the ultimately important question. Not easy to offer an answer. One can only consider hypotheses, guesses, big ifs in front of all of them. When you look at these various hypotheses, psychological, uh, advanced technology, hoax, fabrication, fraud, poorly understood geophysical phenomena. You run through all of those. This is certainly what I've done in the past year of checking. You find yourself ending up with the seemingly absurd, seemingly improbable hypothesis that these things may be coming from somewhere else. Peering into the shadows where the truth often hides, you're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. From Zoomer Radio, AM 740. April 29th to May 3rd of this year, uh, there is going to be what's called a citizen's hearing on UFO disclosure. It's going to be held at the Washington, D.C. National Press Club, again, April 29th to May 3rd, and it's under the direction of Stephen G. Bassett, who's been on the program many times. He's the executive director of the Paradigm Research Group. And uh, uh, Mr. Bassett is expecting some 40 witnesses who will present over 30 hours of testimony to former members of the House of Representatives regarding events and evidence relevant to the extraterrestrial-related phenomena. This citizens' hearing uh, setting will match that of a formal Senate hearing to the extent possible. The proceedings will be uh, streamed live over the Internet. An international film production company will uh, tape the hearings in preparation for a film documentary. Now... In preparation for that citizens' hearing on disclosure in Washington, 
there's a Canadian group in support of ET disclosure uh, that's going to be hosting an international preview event for the press and the general public here in Toronto. The event will provide an in-depth preview of the citizens' hearing. Uh, a keynote address at the Toronto Preview event will be delivered by the Honourable Paul Hellyer, former Canadian Minister of National, National Defence. Uh, and uh, also, uh, Stephen G. Bassett will be making an appearance. Uh, Grant Cameron, Canadian UFO researcher and webmaster uh, for the President's UFO website in Winnipeg, will be uh, involved. And uh, the mediator, or the moderator, rather, of this event will be our very own Victor Vigiani, uh, who joins me uh, frequently on this program. He's the news director at Zeland Communications News Network, co-host uh, from time to time here on The Conspiracy Show. All this uh, uh, taking place Thursday, February the 7th. And if you could, just kindly log on to conspiracyculture.com for more details. Conspiracyculture.com. All right, welcome back. We are speaking with uh, Oliver Von Kamensky and Jed Turnbull about... Uh, the alien abduction of children, uh, pretty difficult to, to contemplate uh, the horror, uh, what it must be like not only for the children, of course, to, to, uh, to be going through this, but uh, imagine being a parent and not being able to protect your child from this. Um, now, Oliver, Jed, a lot of people probably listening tonight saying this is pretty hard to swallow, pretty hard to believe. I mean, what sort of protocols do you put in place uh, in order to determine that there's no other explanation for what's going on here. For example, how do we know these, ch- these children aren't psychologically disturbed or are, aren't having some sort of a, a night terror or aren't suffering from sleep paralysis? Well, our assumption is that it is something other than abduction. That's the last scenario that we select. Um, mm-hmm. If everything else cancels out, that's when we look to the abduction phenomenon as a possibility. Um, I have a, a letter here from a woman from Alabama. You know, she was so upset, you know, with the experiences of her daughters. You know, she explains that she's moved from Michigan to Tennessee and now to Alabama. And whatever it is that was bothering her uh, and her children, Too many things have happened over the years that she can't explain, and she herself claims that she's a logical, intelligent, skeptical person, but at her wit's end. And hearing the same exact stories from her children, which she had experienced as as a young as a young woman uh, when she was earlier in her in her in her childhood and into her adulthood, those things are very compelling when they match up with other stories that sound exactly like. Can you share um, maybe some of the details from that story, obviously without revealing names and so forth, but what, 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 what ha- what's happening with this family from Alabama? How many children were in, involved? Well, this particular woman who had contacted me had two daughters, and uh, uh, her one el- eldest daughter had been bothered uh, her entire life and had several, had several experiences which she thought were ghost-related. Um, but she would be very afraid to talk about it. And uh, she was afraid that if she would tell anybody, that people would think that she was crazy, that she was nuts in her own words. And uh, the agony of the fear and the pain that the mother saw her daughter going through, especially at bedtime, uh, she remembers it on several different occasions where 
at first they thought it was nightmares, but the daughter knows the difference between nightmares and what's not, especially now that she's older. And her, you know, she would she would uh, come running out of the bedroom, extremely upset and terrified. Now, does that make it? Uh, does that make it anything but a nightmare? Does it make it anything? Could it, could there be other explanations? Yes, but repeatedly, if this happens again and again, uh, she's slowly trying to start talk to her daughter, and she's starting to see that things are coming out that are very similar to what we've seen as repeated patterns in the UFO abduction scenario. So, no, we don't know if, yeah. it's, if it's you know if it's that or if it's something else. I think, Ollie, you make a really, really good point that the last stop is, is, is to you know, determine that this is a, an alien abduction phenomenon. It could be any array of things, but there are, there are things we can do to use as a process of elimination, Richard. Uh, Let me just uh, stop hybrid. you there. Let me just stop you there, Jed. Yeah. We'll, we'll uh, get into some of those uh, um, a list of things, I guess, that you, do you utilize in order to eliminate some of the more obvious uh, worldly, let's say, uh, explanations for what's going on with these children. And we'll do that after this uh, timeout. Oliver Von Kamensky and Jed Turnbull on the line from Manhattan. New York Strange Phenomena Investigators investigating cradle robbers, aliens that abduct children. Stay with us here on The Conspiracy Show. When you look at the sky, ever wonder if someone's looking back? This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To speak to Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. From time to time, I'll post some, uh, what I consider to be uh, pretty remarkable UFO footage, and I've posted uh, one in particular up on the website, richardserrett.com. If you scroll down, on the right-hand side under the uh, In the News section, and you'll see it near, there near the bottom. Amazing UFO footage from a remote fishing village. There is video. Check that out. Uh, RichardSerrett.com. And uh, while you're there, uh, say hello on Twitter. You can follow me on Twitter, at Richard Serrett. Right now, we continue our discussion on the uh, alien abduction of children uh, with uh, Jed Turnbull and Oliver Von Kamensky, who join us on the line from New York City. Uh, Oliver and uh, Jed are members of New York Strange Phenomena Investigators. And uh, we were talking about how you sort of go about eliminating some of the more obvious explanations. Uh, let's say you're a parent and you're, you're concerned about your child because maybe they're talking about an imaginary friend or maybe, you know, it's not an imaginary friend. It's just there's some mummy, there's something at the foot of the bed every night or I'm saying these, I'm seeing these strange lights or what have you. What should a parent ask their children? How should a parent uh, approach this with their child? You, you don't in just my, ignore it. No, you don't ignore it, Richard. In, in my experience, uh, the most important thing for a parent to do is, is not really ask anything but to listen and uh, listen very carefully. Obviously, most parents are, in a sense, behind the learning curve of this phenomenon. That's, that's an important aspect of this. They may, they may be listening just all, all well and good, but at the same time, they don't really know uh, what their child may be um, reporting. But nonetheless... Um, if the parent listens and and 
and has uh, some kind of experience with this already and starts to make associations that the, ch- the same thing may be happening to their own children. Um, it, it's, it's important to discern by, by looking for corroborating evidence or, you know, looking for consistency with what their experiences have been and uh, looking for uh, an absence of other kind of psychiatric explanation or diagnosis that may account for this. Uh, that's, that's one of the things that's pretty consistent uh, with uh, children as well as adults is, is uh, the absence of any other psychological or, uh, again, emotional uh, explanation for what might be happening. Physical changes and marks that affect the body is only experiencers, uh, uh, children as well as adults. You know, there are uh, sometimes, as Ollie pointed out, nosebleeds, cuts, boot marks, bruises, um, patterns of skin lesions that, that are consistent and happen uh, and appear on bodies of more than one abductee at the same time. And so, so that's another thing, uh, another pattern to kind of look for. Uh, there seems to be an association uh, uh, with the abductee phenomena with with um, UFO reports, sightings that may come up in the newspaper that same night that all of a sudden a child went missing and was returned, but the parents didn't know what happened. Um, and I think just in and of itself, the very fact that, that children as young as two or three years of age are reporting these things with amazing consistency, um, lends itself to, to some credibility in and of itself, especially when you, when again, you know, there's, there seems to be distinctions that, that these weren't just bad dreams or, or in a sense the boogeyman in the closet, that kind of thing, because a, a child may come back with, uh, you know, grass stains between your toes, and, they, you know, the, their descriptions are more vivid than they would be in a, in a normal bad dream, that kind of thing. So, so there, these are a few of the things that, that parents can look for and and uh, try to use to discern, as we do, um, you know, the, the real truth or the real the ability to narrow down what may be happening to their own children. This may so, sound like a, a naive uh, a question, um, and I and I, I a certain part of me wishes that I remain naive forever. <laughs> uh, but is there anything a parent could do? Uh, in terms of a child's sleeping arrangement that might, that has proven effective in perhaps thwarting an abduction. For example, w- uh, if, a ch- if a parent were to sit vigil uh, with a child at night, I mean, could that prevent an abduction? Has that ever been tried, sitting vigil? We know that our parents have done that, but at times the parents have either been switched off, so to speak, or have fallen asleep or have also been taken along based upon their renditions of what may have happened. Um, I guess you had asked a question earlier, um, what's the best way to communicate with your child if your child comes forth with, with these types of allegations of experiences? And I think Bud Hopkins wrote a very interesting piece upon, on this back in the 90s, and up at the top of the list was that you shouldn't argue against your child's perception of what he or she thinks is real. Judd was absolutely right that you must listen to what they have to say and use language that's similar to the child's when discussing the subject and ask questions. For instance, 
if your child is, you know, three or four years old, let them describe what happened to you by asking them, can you draw a picture? And uh, what happens if uh, there's a lot of good, well-intentioned parents who, who will automatically say, oh, it was just a dream, go back to bed, or on the other, on the other hand of the coin, rather than invalidating what the child says, they might say, they might ask too many questions, underlining what has occurred to them. And, and both approaches are wrong because uh, the approach of ignoring the child's uh, uh, secret traumas or what may have happened to them winds up causing the child to uh, lack, uh, find, become distrustful of the parent and they can't tell anybody. They can't tell their, not even their parents, they can't tell their sisters, they can't tell their brothers. And then on the other side of the coin, if you ask too many questions, then you are reinforcing the incident and the trauma to them and making it a very large part of their life, which you want to try to minimize. It's very, very true. Uh, that it, 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 You are walking a line here as a parent, and obviously you want what's best for your child. The intentions are always very good and, and very high, high concern from the parents. Um, but I think Ali will agree too, that, that in our experience with our amount of research over this phenomena for decades now, that there's nothing, to answer your question, Richard, there's nothing a parent or anyone else can do to prevent this from happening if indeed the intent is of these alien beings to take either adult or children or both. There's nothing. Not that we're aware of, at least. That we're aware of. That's pretty grave news, really, um, yeah. if, if you're staring this situation yeah. in the face. There's nothing you can do to protect your child uh, from this. No. No, not in, our, not in all of our experience. There's never been anything, any successful way of preventing this from, ha- from happening um, when the alien's intention is to really um, take you for their, for their purposes. And Richard, we'll use the word alien very loosely because mm-hmm. we don't really know exactly what the phenomenon is that's causing this, but for lack of a better term, we'll say alien, okay? Yes, very good point. Thanks, Alan. Right, right. Yeah. But, if you, but if you, as a parent, as far as you know, were not um, abducted or are not a, a victim of a, uh, alien abduction, would you say that you could say with any certainty then that your that your child likely will not be? Well, that's we just found, the we reverse. It to be intergenerational. We found that there's less of a chance uh, if the parents haven't reported that. But there's also times when when people are not cognizant of their experiences, where people may go through an entire lifetime and only towards the end of their lifetime remember experiences. But as we said earlier, it is an intergenerational um, phenomenon. It seems to be more concentrated amongst families. If uh, if you've had experiences, your parents probably have, your grandparents probably have, and your children probably will. Do any children report a positive experience? I think, uh, you know, if I could speak to that, Richard, they, they tend to report positive experiences and in the sense of their ability to cope, it's a coping mechanism. In fact, they can be they can uh, relate that these uh, uh, that an abductee, I'm sorry, an abduction experience, a, 
was um, met with a very playful character, and they, they can have a playful name for this person as if it's a, or this being as if it was, um, you know, an imaginary friend. But there are distinctions between that. And so, so I tend to see those as coping mechanisms or defense mechanisms for the child uh, to, you know, to survive, really, as all defense mechanisms are. Is regression... Uh... Um, recommended for children, or is that something that, I mean, if they have no memory of it, is it best sort of left in the recesses of their minds? Absolutely. Absolutely. I would never take a child into a deeper state of hypnosis uh, just to just to find out what, to destroy any defenses that they may have in their ability to cope. Children don't, don't have the ability, once they gain the, that kind of insight and information, to deal with that reality. In fact, just in, in mundane circumstances of everyday life, children, children will, will uh, turn themselves into pretzels, finding ways to blame themselves for difficulties that are going on within their own household. And you, add, you, layer, you layer an abduction phenomenon on top of that, and the child will be ridden with guilt and shame and, and feel like they've just wreaking havoc on the household. Finally, Absolutely not. Final quick question. If you're a parent and you fear that your child is being abducted, uh, are there support groups? Are there, I mean, where, do, where do they go? Either Holly? Jed, yeah. Jed or Oliver? Oh, yeah. Yeah. We, 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 we've, there, uh, are, we've, there are support groups uh, through, uh, there were support groups through the Foundation. There are support groups through us as well. We try to put people in touch that have had similar similar experiences. So based upon your geographic area, now with the Internet, things are a little bit easier of getting contact with people, but there's nothing like face-to-face contact, you know, which you can possibly do through Skype. Oliver and Jed, thank you so much for this. Uh, New York Strange Phenomena Investigators, I appreciate your time tonight. Well, thanks, thanks for having us. All right, have a good night. Good night, now. My thanks to Tim Spreen for production. Next week, Sean David Morton. Tried to have him on a couple of weeks ago, but he's here uh, next week for sure, talking Area 51 and the Secret Space Program. Of course, our paranormal investigator, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, will make her regular return to the program and much more. Hope you're along for that ride. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Idea City on the air and The Garden Show.